Welcome to the Novel Romantics Literature of Chicago podcast series at the American Centrum Hamburg. I'm the host of Novel Romantics, Douglas Cowie. I'm a writer and teacher. In each episode of this series, my guest and I will discuss a work of fiction set primarily in Chicago. For this episode, we will be discussing The House on Mango Street by Sandra Cisneros, which was first published in 1984, and my guest today is Alina Borger. Alina Borger grew up in the Chicago suburbs, but now writes and teaches in Iowa City, Iowa. Her creative work has appeared in the Black Fox Literary Journal, Blue Heron Review, and Rabbit Poetry, among others. In her school district, she pioneered the AP Capstone course and developed the Reading Like an Adult curriculum for rising graduates. When she's not writing or teaching, she's on the sidelines at her son's soccer matches or curling up with a good book and a mug of tea. You can find her online at www.alinaborger.com. Welcome, Ali. Thank you. Okay, so today we're going to discuss The House on Mango Street by Sandra Cisneros. And I guess one of the reasons that I invited you as our guest is because you teach this in schools in Iowa mm-hmm. City, Iowa, as mm-hmm. previously advertised. And right. I'm just wondering, I guess, why you chose this book to teach in a, in a high school curriculum and also like what your students think about this book. How do they, how do they deal with it? Well, the truth is that we chose it because it's very skinny. <laughs> That's always a good reason. To, I mean, even at universities, we choose books sometimes. It's like, well, this is short. <laughs> yeah, it really is important to the like mental game of teaching mm-hmm. a novel, especially with freshmen and sophomores, which is where we pitch this book, for them to not feel overwhelmed just looking at the size of the thing. So that's the start. And then we were really interested in teaching a novel that had an unconventional structure. There's a lot of debate, which we can talk about later. Yeah. Are these chapters or are these vignettes? And we've tended to treat them as vignettes and talk about how we structure vignettes. And then it gives us a chance to teach narrative writing using the novel as an exemplar. And then students are writing smaller bits of narrative. Mm-hmm. And it seems to help them really focus in on the kinds of details that you would want to have in narrative writing, as opposed to like, I have to tell the whole story of my trip to Disneyland. That's really, that's super interesting, actually. I hadn't considered using it that way myself, despite the fact that I teach writing. Um, shame on me. Um, <laughs> no, because that makes that makes a lot of sense that, that showing them that there's like these small chapters that are actually part of a whole gives you a kind of sense that you, that detail matters is that just a really interesting idea because that's always an issue I think teaching novice writers is you give them an assignment that's like 500 words or 1500 words or 2000 words and no matter what you say they think oh my god I've got to tell a story it has to have like a rounded out ending that satisfies some sense of closure or or completion or whatever and actually the thing that this novel does incredibly is live in the details of moments. And I maybe want to use that as a way of, I want to come back to this, what you said about vignettes and structure and chapters. I'm not even quite sure. I think this is just me being a bit of an idiot, maybe. I don't know. I have a problem with this word vignettes, and I'm not quite sure I can even articulate why exactly. And so that's maybe one of the things that we could discuss is like, I guess the closest I can come to saying exactly why is it just seems to diminish the structure, the overall structure of the novel. And it starts to, in my mind, suggest that it's not a novel, but it's just this, <clears throat> I guess vignettes sort of imply something offhand or small or or negligible, I don't know. Um, and and so it's, it diminishes the, what 
Sandra Cisneros is doing overall with her structure here, in my head anyway, to say, oh, it's, it's these, it's this collection of vignettes. And then you don't think about how they add up. You just go, oh, that's a nice vignette. That's a nice little scene. That's a moment. But they actually do add up to something. I don't know. Um, how do you approach this with your students? Or how do you think about this even without that? It's a really great question. So there's a couple of things I've done to help students access it as a novel as opposed to just just a collection <laughs> because I think you're right the temptation there is to denigrate the accomplishments of the novel which are legion so one of the things that we've done is oftentimes we will make a sort of progressive map as we're reading the novel along a traditional sort of plot triangle right like a frere so what that does is students start to see that there is exposition, that there is rising action, that there is a clear climax and that there is resolution. And, you know, the frame of the opening paragraph being in the closing vignette, right? But really it isn't usually until the midpoint of the novel in reading and teaching it that we're putting these things on the map where students are like, oh, it's, it is a story, it takes them that long to figure out that they're reading something cohesive. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I, I think it probably, to be fair to your students, it takes anyone reading this novel that long to figure out that you're reading something cohesive. It's one of the things that makes it so True. great and so smart is, and I suppose it's, I mean, not necessarily unusual. There are there are other novels that use this kind of structure. It's not like Sandra Cisneros has invented it and it's not like no, no one's done it since, but she uses it so well and so subtly, right? Like, so this, I mean, and I guess the, it, it, when you were, when you were, saying why why you teach this in in secondary school the other obvious reason to teach this to secondary school students is is that it's um you know it's about it's about an, like growing into adolescence it's about it's a it's a coming of age story to some degree and it's a you know it's i think the idea that you can read serious literature at the age of 14 15 16 and and read something that's about a 13 14 15 16 year old is really exciting it's one of the things that actually makes this novel hard to teach. So most adolescent readers are what we call aspirational readers. That is, they prefer to read about characters who are in the four to five years mm -hmm. above them. Um, it's why YA is really popular with junior high students and not so popular with actual high school students. And so convincing my freshmen and sophomores, it's been freshmen and it's moving to the sophomore curriculum. So we're in a like swing moment, but convincing freshmen and sophomores to read down like age-wise, while reading up, literature-wise, that's been a it's been a challenge. That's interesting. I hadn't thought of it that way because, um, well, I don't teach that age group myself. But that's really interesting because I would just think, I don't know. I guess I, I can see I can understand that also. But at the same time, this is such a complicated complicated novel that I mean I don't know how it. it it's set in essentially in one street in one neighborhood in Chicago, a fictional. Um, street, it has to be said, there is no actual, there is actually a mango street in Chicago, but it's got nothing to do with this street. In fact, it might not even mm -hmm. be called street, it might be called Avenue or something. And anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, I did look it up at one point, And I, there's something in an interview. I don't actually know. There's, a, there's really an interview with her. Um, there's like a Studs Terkel interview with her that you can listen to on the Studs Terkel archive where she says something about that, that I, don't, I think she didn't even know there was actually a mango. She's like, she, <laughs> she chose it for particular reasons and she was fictionalizing a certain aspects of her own upbringing. Right. right. Um, and chose that. And then only discovered later, there is an actual street. It's got, it's like nowhere near where this is supposed to be. It's nothing like the street that this is supposed to be. It's just a, an unhappy accident, I suppose. But does, like, how does that, 
1980s or 1970s Chicago setting, how do students in Iowa in in the 21st century find that? How do they relate to that is another question that I'm kind of interested in. Yeah. So, you know, there's really only, in my estimation, two moments in the novel that are like uniquely Chicago. Mm -hmm. One where they're talking about the mayor never coming to their neighborhood. Yeah. And the other where they're talking about the different dance halls and it includes the Aragon. Yeah. So I don't think the Chicago thing is particularly, I don't know. It doesn't stand out to my students and we don't talk about it very much um, except to acknowledge, yeah, it's set there. The thing that I think is more challenging is, as you said, the 70s and 80s, which become farther and farther away the longer I teach. (laughs) And I mean, even things like my students this year have literally never lived in a world without an iPhone, you know, they were born in 2007. Like it just that kind of crossing cultures is is becoming more pertinent to how we teach the novel. Yeah, there's weird things like having to go to somebody's house to see if they're home if you want to like hang out with them. Yes. It's just not something that yes. anyone does anymore, right? And it's second nature to us because no. we didn't grow up with iPhones either. Um, but we right. at least could call our friends and like see if they were mm-hmm. around. Yeah, even the sort of like stoop culture, right? Yeah. Of like, we're sitting on our front porch, or as you pointed out, lots of women and girls looking out of windows is not something that students experience a lot. I mean, Iowa City is not rural, it's more suburban, but they don't experience that here mm-hmm. in any way. And so I find that kind of challenging to it's, connect yeah, to. It's like a, almost, this is, this is overstating it, but it's almost like a science fiction world to them or... or or it's like a historical novel to them, maybe is a smarter um, it, comparison it is, yes. in a way that mm-hmm. in a way that we would not think of no. that at all. <laughs> I mean, I had a funny. No, in fact, I have my sister's copy from when she read it in high school oh, wow. at our high school. Oh, right? I mean, so it's funny to think like to her, this was a contemporary novel that they were yeah. getting to read in school, and for my students, it is not. Yeah, it's old. I mean, it, you know, nineteen eighty four is. It was a long time ago now. Um, it's, mm-hmm. So I, what I was going to say, it was, it was interesting to me when I was working on my last novel, which is set in the 1940s, 50s, people kept saying to me, oh, so it's a historical novel. And I'd never, it, it never occurred to me that to think of it that way. And I didn't think of it that way. And I don't think of it that way. But it, the reason was that I didn't think of it that way, I think, is because it was a world that was still in touching distance for me. You know, it was my parents' youth was in that period of time. So it felt alive and real. My grandparents were very much alive and adults in that period and told me about that kind of thing. So it felt more living. Whereas the further you get away from that, I guess, especially when you're young, when I was young, I probably thought about the forties and fifties as history. And I think of it less that way now, but that's an interesting thing. I want to come back to the mayor. um, And I also want to talk about the women in the windows (laughs) there. I'm I'm going to be a bit paradoxical as we get into sort of more of the details of the novel and start towards the ending um, as maybe a way of, of, moving to the beginning and talking about what this novel is actually about. So, um, cause I think that, it, that pinpointing the, the two things that are actually Chicago about it. And one, just the mention of the Aragon ballroom, which is a, I suppose a superficial detail in a lot of ways. Um, it's a nice detail. If you know the Aragon, well, you know, you know what I mean? Like you, if you, if you know the yeah. Aragon ballroom, it adds some flavor and you know exactly what that means. And you, and you can have a sense of it. If, if you don't, it's just a specific name that adds a bit of texture and detail. Whereas the mayor is a different thing. 
because of Chicago mayors and who the Chicago mayor that's being referred to right. here is. So um, I'm just going to read this little bit of it, and it involves a character who I also want to come to talking about. No, Alicia says, like it or not, you are Mango Street, and one day you'll come back to, not me, not until somebody makes it better. Who's going to do it? The mayor? And the thought of the mayor coming to Mango Street makes me laugh out loud. Who's going to do it? Not the mayor. I mean, this is, I. so I teach a course on the literature of Chicago, and I teach this book on it, and like, the mayor looms large over over the course. Um, I mean, we read a book about, we, we read Mike Royko's book about Richard J. Daly. And of course, and there's also Richard M. Daly. And that and there's, we don't have time necessarily in this context of this conversation to go into all that. But when you say the mayor in a book about Chicago, everyone knows who you're talking about, right? And this idea that is interesting, even beyond the specifics of the mayor, is that the idea that any mayor, you know, the, the division between the world of Esperanza, the, the girl who's narrating this novel um, and her few blocks of her world in this neighborhood in Chicago and the world of the politician and the mayor, the kind of official society that, yeah. she, that she's a tiny part of. And the fact that they don't ever come into contact, even though her life is in many ways determined by that power and that the idea of the mayor dropping in on her neighborhood is, is laughable, even to a young woman, even to a teenage girl. is very interesting. I don't know. Do, is that a thing that you, you make an issue of with your students? Is it something that you think about when you're just reading this novel for your own? So I think about it a lot because the daily family, I mean, so my parents grew up, my, my mom grew up in the city and mm-hmm. the South side. And so he loomed large over they, the dailies loomed large over my own childhood. Mm-hmm. I, I don't, I don't even know that I would have known who they were, except we were often hearing about Mayor Daly this or Mayor Daly that or Maggie Daly this. So I think that's why it stands out to me personally. My students don't have any recognition or sort of moment of aha with that unless we talk about it, unless I point it out to them. I mean, to me, it's just. Like you, it's. I mean, my connection to that is is less direct, but but it is just something that that looms this figure, this mm. looming figure over the city. Even you know, to some degree today, the way that the power is concentrated <laughs> in the mayor's office, regardless of whether it's you know, it hasn't been a daily for quite a long time now. But I mean, Rahm Emanuel certainly organizes. By the way, Lori yep. Lightfoot mm-hmm. now. Yeah, I'm now going to skip right back to the beginning Good. of the novel where she's she's talking to a nun from her school. And this is the kind of, I guess, the other end of that, that mayor comment. Once when we were living on Loomis, a nun from my school passed by and saw me playing out front. The laundromat downstairs had been boarded up because it had been robbed two days before and the owner had painted on the wood, yes, we're open, so as not to lose business. Where do you live, she asked. There, I said, pointing up to the third floor. You live there? There. I had to look to where she pointed, the third floor, the paint peeling, wooden bars Papa had nailed on the window so he wouldn't fall out. You lived there? The way she said it made me feel like nothing. There. I lived there. I nodded. I knew then I had to have a house, a real house, one I could point to, but this isn't it. The house on Mango Street, isn't it? For the time being, Mama says, temporary, says Papa, but I know how those things go. I mean, all of it's there, right? The it's in the literally in the word there, which gets repeated one, two, three, four, five times 
six times. In fact, I didn't circle one of them in my book and I feel shame. Uh, all in that one spot, like it's that this placement and it's there. It's, it's almost a no place at the same time. It's a real place. Then this is talking about the apartment before the house on Mango Street, but the house on Mango Street, which is supposed to be better than it and in some ways is, is still a temporary replacement. And these are both places where the mayor isn't going to go. And this is a life. And this is the, this comes to, I think, the heart of what this novel is really about. This is a life ignored by the mayor or whatever we want to, like, we're using the mayor as a metonym for something else, I suppose. But, like, this is a, a life ignored by that version mm-hmm. of society. What, yeah, what Nelson Algren calls the life behind the billboards. Yes. What a great image that is. Yes. That's because he's the exactly. master. <laughs> <laughs> I think that, I mean, there is the opposite of where in some ways, yeah. you know, this is a, not a nowhere, it's a no there. Like, because the characters are located in that place, it stops being nowhere and starts to be a place to us, but is, as you say, hidden from power. Yeah, um, hidden from power, hidden from like more than, so, I mean, this comes, we're sort of traveling around all the different th- themes that perk up in this and i guess this might come back to the vignettes thing that we haven't entirely uh, addressed or solved but um that that all of the different themes of this novel keep weaving in and out and are again we we've discussed this already kind of hard to pin down for a long time i mean i've i don't know how many times i've read this novel um and i'm always amazed at how when every time i read it how how carefully woven into the, the whole structure of the novel all of these different themes and images and everything are, but also how difficult it is as a reader reading a novel with a beginning and a middle and an end and all these things to start to grasp them, which is a, like a terrific accomplishment of the novel. I think that, that because the plot is, is sort of beneath the surface, we think of plot usually as being quite on the surface of a novel. You follow the plot in order to understand the character's, in order to get to grips with themes and motifs and whatever. And here it's almost like the opposite. The motifs are all up sitting there up on the surface and you have to dig into them to understand the characters and the plot. Yeah. It's like, it's like she's turned Aristotle inside out or something. Mm-hmm. The other thing I think is that the neighborhood starts to really be the protagonist that Esperanza is sort of in a relationship with. Mm-hmm. And that's also a pretty helpful way of accessing plot if we're looking at the neighborhood as the main character as opposed to any one of the... I mean, part of the reason I think we talk about this as vignettes is there's almost no way to get a grip on the sheer number of characters who are introduced with real intimacy, real vulnerability, real detail in the course of the novel. It just kids start to feel like, and I do myself even rereading this novel over and over again, that I am just lost in this sea of people. But when we're sort of tracing it as a neighborhood novel, it helps to unify the narrative. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, I think I'm glad you brought that up because I think also a lot of Chicago novels function, at least in part that way that this like the neighborhood always or the and, and or the city end up becoming a kind of character which is a slightly woolly and cheesy thing to say but it's also true and I think a bit different from say New York novels that I've read 
where even though New York has these very strong neighborhood identities, I mean, every place does really, but they don't seem, at least to my understanding, to the, the neighborhoods or the city don't come alive in quite the same characterful way. It's more of like, mm-hmm. so even in a, in a novel like Sister Carrie, which we talked about elsewhere in this series, where like the first half is Chicago and the second half is New York. And Chicago has all this detail and it's these different things. And you're going from the poor part to the rich part, whatever. And New York becomes this monolith and it's this power. And Chicago has that power, but it exercises it in different ways. And maybe this is back to the, it being located in the, the mayor. Part of the neighborhood being a character is also bound up in the themes of the novel. I think that the, especially as you get to the end where it becomes clear that part of what this novel is about is about the writing of the novel itself. And I don't mean that in a kind of weird self-reflexive postmodern-y kind of gimmicky kind of way. That passage that I read out first where she's talking to Alicia and, and it's like, you know, you have to come back. You'll it's mango street is part of you and you're going to have to come back. Part of the way Esperanza comes back is by writing it and the writing it becomes the way of, of returning to the neighborhood of exercising the neighborhood of ending the relationship with the neighborhood in some ways or redefining the relationship. I don't think ending is actually the right word now that I've said it out loud. Um, yeah. I mean, not based on how, yeah. Yeah. Um, um, getting to understand the relationship with the neighborhood. I mean, it does, it's kind of means all the things that I think are great about what, what makes writing a useful and, and wonderful art, but I want to maybe turn to this idea of all these characters who get in. You said something really interesting and smart, I thought, which is you get introduced to these, this huge cast of characters with such immediate intimacy. So I've just yeah. turned to the chapter called Sally because Sally becomes a really important focal point in the last quarter or so of the novel. She's introduced uh, in a chapter called Sally. This is, this is just the beginning of Sally. Sally is the girl with eyes like Egypt and nylons the color of smoke. The boys at school think she's beautiful because her hair is shiny black like raven feathers. And when she laughs, she flicks her hair back like a satin shawl over her shoulders and laughs. Her father says to be this beautiful is trouble. They are very strict in his religion. They are not supposed to dance. He remembers his sisters and is sad. Then she can't go out. Sally, I mean all of Sally's story, which develops into quite a harrowing story, is right there in that one paragraph. And it's so plain. I guess it's the plainness maybe that makes it so intimate. It's very, this matter of fact, telling you stuff. And I guess this is one of the things that makes Sandra Cisneros so great is that I'm going to try and make this (laughs) this little um, speech I'm about to give short. I'm always harping on to my students about (laughs) I'm always harping on to my students about the fact that like people will tell you like show don't tell. And like that's kind of stupid advice because a lot of times you have to tell things and telling things can be really great. And it's about the way you tell it. And like Sandra Cisneros is just telling us stuff here. You know, she's just telling Sally is a girl like this. The boys like Sally. Sally can't go out. Sally's dad's like this. It's just telling, 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 telling. It's very precise, very like precisely detailed telling, but there's like one detail per sentence. And it's, it's because it's telling and not showing that it becomes intimate, I is my argument. Um, and she does this again yeah. and again with every character, which is what builds 
The intimacy with the characters, the intimacy with the narrator, the intimacy with the neighborhood as you start to get more and more of them. Because if you're if you're if you feel like a, an an intimate readerly relationship with 15, I made the number up, but it's probably close to accurate different characters. Maybe more. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I wish now that I'd been professional enough to count. But um, but if you feel that with that many characters that quickly you're going to start having a relationship with the with the neighborhood. You're going to start feeling things about it. And it's just really smart and sharp and difficult to do well writing. Sorry, I'm counting, Doug. 26 I, I wondered on if that's what list. was going on. 26. <laughs> this is where we know who's, yeah. the, who's the trained teacher, teacher. and who is not. <laughs> um, and I suppose... Yeah, you know, the other thing... Nah, go for it. Going going back to the passage you read, and I mean, it's true throughout the whole novel, but the passage you read is a great example of this. Part of the telling, as you're calling it, is this really oversimplified syntax, mm -hmm. um, which helps to communicate the point of view of a young girl, Yeah, but also renders the telling extraordinarily plain voiced. Like, mm -hmm. And that makes it feel like we're seeing something we shouldn't see or that we don't usually see the way that you do when a child says, you know, like my mom has a bottle of medicine in her drawer, yeah, you know, yeah. like that, that kind of like weird thing when a kid doesn't know to filter and in the hands of a master like Cisneros, like she's clearly using that as a tool to make this narrative go. Yeah. The words I wrote down in, in the um, title page of my copy of the novel is that the tone is, it's simultaneously naive and insightful and that's what yeah. you've you just explicated that idea really nicely it's and it's a really hard thing to do because they're kind of at odds with each other so it's like an oxymoronic way of of trying to narrate but again yeah the effect is is incredible because you only kind of there's no irony to that i guess is part of part of it right like it's a kind of it's a kind of position that might be used by other authors in an ironic way or to like to create a kind of knowingness in the reader but but Cisneros constantly cuts that knowingness off you're never allowed to know you're never allowed to know more than Esperanza you don't really know anything until she yeah, tells you. Yeah, there's no you. wink, wink, nudge, nudge. No. There's nothing like that. No, here. but it's it, yeah. it's not like it, it's not like like there's unreliability or or these kinds of things. There's no there's no authorly irony. There's no dramatic irony. It's just it's plain and straightforward, and you get the feeling that this is an honest statement. I mean, this is why it's such a great coming of age novel to use a term that I don't necessarily endorse. <laughs> but there's you know it it. It, it is showing this this girl becoming aware of herself as an adolescent, herself as a, a girl who's becoming a woman, which I think is the important thing here. And maybe we could talk about a great moment where that gets mm -hmm. put on full display in the novel. But it means that, that that tone has to be in control. It has to be unironic. It has to be... You know, you have to be intimate with the narrator mm -hmm. as much as the characters that she is in, herself intimate with and is telling you about. The scene I'm talking about is the the one where they 
prance around in shoes, in high heel shoes, which both of us wanted to talk about. It seems to me that this is one of the like real key high points of the novel. Mm -hmm. I was thinking that the chapter is called shoes, but it's actually called the, the family of little feet. Yes. So in like the beginning of the chapter, it starts as a kind of like fable, right? And then there's this shift in tone out of that fairy tale fable kind of tone. Um, and, and this is the passage. Do you want this? And gave us a paper bag with one pair of lemon shoes and one red and one pair of dancing shoes that used to be white, but were now pale blue here. And we said, thank you. And waited until she went upstairs. Hooray. Today we are Cinderella because our feet fit exactly. And we laugh at Rachel's one foot with a girl's gray sock and a lady's high heel. Do you like these shoes? But the truth is, it is scary to look down at your foot that is no longer yours and see it attached a long, long leg. Everyone wants to trade the lemon shoes for the red shoes, the red for the pair that were once white but are now pale blue, the pale blue for the lemon, and take them off and put them back on and keep on like this a long time until we are tired. Of course, from there, it goes to them sort of walking across the neighborhood and the men in the neighborhood commenting on how these shoes have turned them into young ladies and their own discomfort with that. But this moment of putting on the shoes is such a transformative instant when they see the long, long leg on their own body and have to sort of recognize themselves as women. It's really powerful. Yeah. And it's just like, like, this is that like plainness, like the girls suck in the woman's shoe. I mean, you really only get the effect from, from reading the entire chapter, but the, one of the things that Cisneros does so well while maintaining the same overall narrative tone that we were just talking about, she shifts things like, so it starts as this, this fable fairy tale. And then here gave us. So now suddenly she's the back being a character in it and it turns into something else, but it's still like that. Hooray. We are Cinderella. It's still, keeping in that world and it's but that world drops away like only a few paragraphs after after where you stop reading where exactly the the men notice and there's the the man in the in the corner store and at the bottom of that page mr benny at the corner grocery store puts down his important cigar your mother know you got shoes like that who give you those and he says them are dangerous and he's this outside voice and and as you said it's the men all noticing and he's the man with like a kind of He's got that kind of moral position, moral outlook, and is trying to protect these girls. And most of the other boys and men in this novel are not. Or they say that they are, and they're not like Sally's dad. Yeah. 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 And there's all this, in that moment, all of those different dynamics are all starting to come together. All these different men's voices enter. She's still trying to narrate through this, story it's not a um fairy tale anymore and it's this yeah childhood it's a it's it's i'm trying to think of the right way to put this because it what this novel is is like really subtle and really unsubtle all at the same time there's like this is mm-hmm. this chapter is yeah. this huge warning bell and you see it all but all, at the same time it's it's all done just so intricately so carefully woven together that you don't quite I mean, you, you notice that it's a warning but you can't miss it mm-hmm. i think it's particularly fascinating that it's 
feet, right? Yeah. So that piece is really interesting to me because this is sort of the moment where that's established. And then, you know, various points in the novel come back to she's looking at Mamacita's feet or she's looking at the toes of the baby. Like there's all these sort of moments where this body part has sort of become a stand-in for the ways our bodies change during adolescence. Mm-hmm which is clever, right? Like there, there are a lot more risque body parts yeah. that she could have been talking about, but choosing this kind of constantly references us back to this chapter, but it doesn't, it doesn't do any of the more, I don't know, controversial moves that could be made. That's again, because of the narrative perspective, right? Like she herself, mm-hmm. she's not, yet aware of herself as a as a sexual or sexualized being woman she's not a woman yet she is still a girl and that's exactly mr benny's voice there and then there's the kid who cycles by on his bike and is like you know ladies let me love you or something like that and they're you know they're not ladies mm-hmm. the man knows that they're girls the boy calls them ladies they're kind of just bewildered by it and not entirely comprehending it and so for her to talk about you know other body parts there is a thing about hips but even that is like true yes. the the, mm-hmm. the discourse on discourse is giving it a bit too fancy a word but the like the conversation about hips that the girls have is is also kind of muddled in m- not understanding misunderstanding semi-awareness none of it ironized mm-hmm. again all just there playing right. for like that asks you to interpret mm-hmm. and i think it really evokes girlhood. I I mean, there's something that rings deeply true about this image of like, I know this is the thing I'm noticing or supposed to notice, but I also don't know entirely why. And I think it's part of what makes it feel intimate is that there's like a resonance to girlhood more broadly. I mean, we've talked about this already a little bit. It's it's a girlhood that is constantly being threatened. I wanted to say by the mayor, but it's not really by the mayor. Um, it's being threatened by <laughs> by the boys and men. So there's a chapter uh-huh. called Boys and Girls right at the beginning that says, the boys and girls live in separate worlds, the boys in their universe and we in ours. My brothers, for example, they got plenty to say to me and Nenny inside the house, but outside they can't be seen talking to girls. And you know, this just sets up, there's these set, this separateness, but the rest of the novel, you just see these worlds constantly colliding. And sometimes it's just a, a, a light collision, and sometimes it's a full-bore, devastating collision, like with Sally. Yeah. Well, going going back to what you said during the shoe chapter, I mean, part of what's happening is, I think how you said it is, she's trying to narrate her way through but the voices of these men keep coming in and you see that in all kinds of ways, but it really is like, she's trying to tell a story and -and so-and-so says this, so-and-so says that, so-and-so says this, but she sort of has to weave her way through to keep the narrative moving forward on her terms and not on theirs. You know, she wants to be the man who doesn't pick up his dinner plate after dinner. (laughs) Um, oh, that might be that either is or isn't a great transition. We'll find out to um, talking about Alicia <laughs> or Alicia. I don't know how you pronounce it. Alicia, Alicia. 
Probably Alicia. Yeah, um, who, Alicia who sees mice. I wonder what it, yes. it's a very very short because chapter. Because she stays up late studying. Exactly. This gets to the like another like I, well I don't know this this is like a for me a, a real linchpin for for the like two or three or four different things in the novel. I wonder whether you um, read that those that whole chapter. <laughs> it's very short. It's two paragraphs. Sure, happily. Yeah, it is very short. Close your eyes and they'll go away, her father says, or you're just imagining. And anyway, a woman's place is sleeping so she can wake up early with the tortilla star, the one that appears early just in time to rise and catch hind legs and hide behind the sink beneath the four-clawed tub under the swollen floorboards nobody fixes in the corner of your eyes. Alicia, whose mama died, is sorry there is no one older to rise and make lunchbox tortillas. Alicia, who inherited her mama's rolling pin and sleepiness, is young and smart and studies for the first time at the university. Two trains and a bus because she doesn't want to spend her whole life in a factory or behind a rolling pin. Is a good girl, my friend. Studies all night and sees the mice, the ones her father says do not exist. Is afraid of nothing except four-legged fur and fathers. Thank you. This is her first appearance in the novel, and then we don't see her for a long time in the novel. But she's the again. I, I don't know. I just I, it's like every sentence I want to say. I was like, this is what's so great, but. She's there. She's an image of escape from Mango Street. The thing that Esperanza wants the most is to escape from Mango Street, this temporary home, as we've already talked about. And here she is. And there's not a huge attention called to the fact that that's what she is. Here's the like role model, but she becomes a role model. I've already read a passage earlier where she's talking to Alicia who says, you know, who has escaped and says, but you don't, you know, it'll always be part of you. And she's speaking from experience there. And she's like the, She's an experienced mm-hmm. version of Esperanza who has this ambition yeah. and and has and is achieving that ambition despite the things stacked up against her. Yeah. You know, the first time I was teaching this novel, I was reading some criticism about it and someone was talking about Alicia in these ways that you are. And I literally said, Alicia who? <laughs> I had to go back to the novel and like reframe her importance because she is really just sort of mentioned in these two places. She doesn't have that, but she looms large in Esperanza's mind and dreams. And obviously really pivotal in that moment where she says mango house, mango street is always going to be part of you. Yeah. But I find that really interesting that even as an experienced reader, she she didn't. She's yeah. You, click she's one of those me. characters you're again introduced to really intimately. And actually, this is a, if you compare that to the Sally introduction. Sally's Sally's chapter is actually longer, and Sally's presence is bigger. And there's lots of reasons for that. But Alicia comes in in a short two paragraph chapter. I mean, literally, you just read the whole chapter. It's much more uh, intense and intimate, uh, much more detailed. There's it's much more metaphorical. There's not really any metaphor in the introduction of Sally. This is all metaphorical and outward looking. And she then vanishes until 20 pages later when they're talking about hips. And she says, but most important, hips are scientific. I say, repeating what Alicia already told me. So she's not even there. She's not even there as a character. <laughs> she's like, person. yeah, right. she's there as off the page. And then she doesn't come back okay. until, until they're sitting there talking and she's giving her the, like yeah. the guidance that she needs to get out. And that, <laughs> guidance 
I think is the other piece of this novel that is really, really important to talk about, which, so if, as we've been talking about, there's this clash of the separate worlds of the boys and the girls and the, and the girls are very vulnerable to that clash as we've hinted at and talked about, we don't want to like give away the whole novel to people. And if, you know, not wanting to be the woman who cooks and makes the tortillas for their siblings and whatever. And you have to make decisions about how to do that. So Sally does it by getting married underage and moving to a different state. And it doesn't work out very well for her. You see that same image repeated with other of the 26 characters that uh, we encounter. <laughs> and you see that as a threat to the, to the life that Esperanza imagines for herself. Alicia offers the one the one example of, of how to get out and for Esperanza that becomes about writing. Mm-hmm. Writing and, and generosity. I mean, I, we haven't talked about this very much, but I think Alicia, Alicia is the model of like sort of reaching back. Mm-hmm. And then Esperanza envisions her future in the, you know, there it's bums in my attic and I'll be happy <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that there's this way that she's going to kind of make space for anyone who wants to come forward into this new life, new house that she imagines for herself. She's going to make space for them to come forward with her. And I think that's from Alicia's model that Alicia yeah. sort of paved the way for her to say like, Oh yeah, this is, I can reach back and bring forward. Yeah. That bums in the attic. Now that you mention it is like, so she imagines herself having this attic where she can just let the, the the bums on the street come and live and be safe and whatever. It's a real sort of catcher in the rye kind of image and and no less yes. naive uh, than than Holden Caulfield, but somehow totally more comforting and you feel like more plausible somehow. <laughs> I don't it's know. It's so endearing. Yeah. It's just so endearing that people will think it's rats, but it's bums and but I'll be bums. happy. Yeah. Like that that moment is so such a picture of, yeah, this imagined future where she is secure enough to be generous. So part of that generosity, though, is also that it's not just the imagining these things that are not possible um, or plausible, I suppose, um, but also like the, the writing itself. So the book is, is dedicated a las mujeres to the women. So that's the first thing you see when you open the book. And then you get, this is on page 61 in my edition. It's the very end of the chapter called Born Bad. And this character says, that's very good, she said in her tired voice. You just remember to keep writing, Esperanza. You must keep writing. It will keep you free. And I said, yes, but at that time, I didn't know what she meant. And it's hard at that moment in the novel to really know what she means, but it pays off basically 40 pages later. when she goes to this funeral and she's talking to these old women. The three sisters. Yeah. And uh, I'm not going to read the whole, there's like about half a page. I'll just read a little bit of it. But she, one of the women says, when you leave, you must remember to come back for the others, a circle. Understand you will always be Esperanza. You will always be Mango Street. You can't erase what you know. You can't forget who you are. Then I didn't know what to say. It was as if she could read my mind, as if she knew what I had wished for. And I felt ashamed for having made such a selfish, 
wish. So like this generosity that you've just um, identified and expanded on, she's, she has, doesn't see it herself as she hasn't yet realized that generous potential of it. She thinks of it as selfish in this moment. Right everything from that point on. So the next chapter is she's talking to Alicia on the steps, uh, the mayor thing that we talked about. And then you get you move very quickly to the last chapter, which is really about nailing that down, that, that part of the generosity. Maybe you can't own a house and keep bums in the attic, but you can tell the stories of these women. And so there's this, this mm-hmm. important role that Sandra Cisneros, the author and, and Esperanza, the, narrator are both playing here and those are separate entities and i want to keep them separate but um and that's that's speaking both to and for these characters giving a voice to their lives these are all people who aren't speaking for themselves aren't writing for themselves and the the circle is that she's coming back and writing the story that's that she can't leave and and that is important not just to her but to them and is doing something um, generous to them is well, my it's reading the of story that the mayor will read right like mm-hmm. the mayor might never come to the neighborhood but gosh darn it um you'd be a fool to be a mayor of chicago and never have read the <laughs> street right like i mean and yet that, that's like well okay all right but, but you know i think there's this it isn't just that she's come back to tell their stories for them which is powerful enough yeah. but back out into the world as well yeah yeah oh absolutely absolutely yeah it's not just about it's not just about saying hey do you recognize yourself here it's about this is this is speaking to something beyond mango street right i mean this is speaking to a, a group of high school students in iowa city iowa or a group of university students in london england or any number of places in between those places right listeners of a podcast uh, all across the <laughs> <laughs> true true i want to go back to born bad for a minute yeah, Doug, sure. because i so i just think the figure of lupe is i mean obviously is a real character in the novel who has mm-hmm. suffered much and dies this slow long painful death but i also feel is a metaphor for Mm -hmm. what's happening to the women in Esperanza's neighborhood. This sort of like long, slow, painful death where like the husbands don't want to be husbands anymore and the kids don't want to be kids anymore. And they're, but they're still like giving her water from a tin cup, like this image of sort of passive femininity. And even the fact that she's named Guadalupe and the Virgin yeah. is sort of invoked by her existence. Like it really, it, it really functions as a picture of a, an alternate future, right? Like if Alicia is the future that Esperanza wants, then Lupe is the future that Esperanza dreads, yeah. um, doesn't want. And the other women are kind of in between those two extremes. Like there's her mom who is much more like the future that Esperanza wants, but just, you know, she says in the novel, she was ashamed. She, Mm -hmm. because of poverty, she was too ashamed to continue pursuing her own potential. Right. Um, And then you have Sally, who's much more like Lupe, who isn't even allowed to look out of the windows of her new sort of patriarchal prison. And so if the women in the novel are a spectrum that, 
that Lupe character is really on that far side of of death yeah. that I think Esperanza is afraid of. Yeah, I mean, and literally dies in that moment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's <laughs> There's no coming back from that alley. Yeah. No, it's really sad. I'm sorry. I probably shouldn't have said that right away. Yeah. <laughs> I've been no, thinking but it's, about I, it a lot. Yeah, the spectrum of women or spectrum of yeah, characters. I think you're absolutely right. I, I hadn't quite considered it that in that exact way. And but I think you're a hundred percent right that there's there's all these iterations and she represents she I mean she represents the whole range right because she's her introduction is that she was this young beautiful swimmer's legs there's legs again mm-hmm. everything and then she's once she becomes you know undesirable to the men for various reasons she's she's no longer a person and like in the way that you know back to the version de Guadalupe symbolism that's being um, evoked here as well that she you know she's not a real woman either she's a saint she's this matriarchal mm-hmm. powerful matriarchal figure in a patriarchal establishment mm-hmm. that is it's almost like she, she shines so that all the other women are can be prevented from shining or, or something um, right. and and here laid out in this chapter as you've already said that even she can't shine ultimately as if she's a real woman and not just an Mm -hmm. icon. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's part of it. I think, wow, that's, I hadn't thought about this before, but there's also a way that Esperanza wants to become an icon, a different kind of icon, but an icon nonetheless. And this, there's sort of an implicit warning that icon isn't the status that you want either. No, no. Cause, <laughs> yeah. Because you're just going to dehumanize your experience. Self. And yeah. your selfhood. And your, well, I mean, yeah. I think I said experience because I was trying not to say self first. And I thought, but yeah, <laughs> good, good teamwork there. Yeah, I mean, I feel like we, we've been talking about this novel for the best part of an hour. And, and we've... We've, I mean, we've more than scratched the surface of it, but there's another like three hours we could keep talking without yes. without getting to the bottom of it. Um, For this skinny little nothing of a book, yeah. that's the funniest part to me is how much there is to say about such a yeah. short novel. It's like you're playing a really cruel trick on your on your students. Like, look, it's just oh, it's it's only 110 pages. You'll so, uh, but there's like a you know there's a big fat victorian novels worth of stuff in it you guys have been suckered mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> which is why it's worth teaching oh yeah, <laughs> yeah totally totally i mean what's great about that actually to come back to where we, we began the the discussion what's great about that is that it's and i don't mean it cynically like oh you suckered your students but you can kind of use it as like look it's short you can read through it in a in a couple of hours i think even if you're not uh, a fast and and experienced reader, you can still zip through it pretty quick and you'll find it difficult and confusing. But then if you, if you're going into a classroom to then talk about it over a series of days or, or weeks, Mm -hmm. it's very easy to reread and, and to reread in lots of detail as you and I have done a few times in the course of this conversation and suddenly realize once you get to grips with that little key that, Oh, if I just read, I know how this all goes. If I now unlock these keys, I, I start to see how things fit together. Mm-hmm. And it is a really rewarding work of literature. 
Yeah. It really does reward close reading, which, you know, that's kind of like the skill of the common core. So it's the, the thing that we have to come back to again and again in a classroom. And I like the way you said it as little keys. Yeah. I think that's really how it works. They'll tap into even just one of these symbols and be like, and here it is, and here it is, and here it is, and here it is. Yes. Yeah. Right. And, like, and you can almost throw a dart at the book. Yes. And... <laughs> And but and, and I, I that sounds that sounds cynical, but I, actually, it's because the the book is so tightly structured and controlled, and because those vignettes aren't really vignettes; they're chapters in a in a novel that progresses from someplace to someplace else via all of however you want to map it, like beginning, middle, and end, mm-hmm. rising action, falling action, blah blah blah. Right. It, it, it fits those things, and it does it so tightly. And so subtly that like if you threw a dart at any motif, any image, you'll see it stacking up in a very patterned, very controlled, very thoughtful, thought through, smart way. Well, Alina Borger, thank you so much for joining me on the Novel Romantics Literature of Chicago podcast. It's been really, really great talking to you about the House on Mango Street. I hope people will check out your website as well. And uh, yeah, it's been really great. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thanks so much, Doug. just so you know, once again, the views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the guests or the host, not the American Centrum, which does not take any institutional positions on politics or policy. Thanks again for listening.